Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. In the year of King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is is full of his glory. The pivots of the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Tamara, Dr. Regert, and everybody. Thank you very much. Wow, what a, what a scene Isaiah 6 is trying to describe. This, this moment of worship that is so thick with meaning and, and so powerful that really all you have are artistic sorts of expressions to try to capture what it is that you're seeing. I've been in a spot like that before. In fact, more than once. Early on, as I was uh, sort of recently named to be a youth pastor here in 1991, I know, I know. I was in Orlando, Florida for Nazarene Youth Congress. And there was, a, there was a worship service that actually that passage reminds me of. I, I don't know how else to describe it, uh, but that it was incredibly powerful. So powerful that I, I was not ever gonna, I was not gonna be able to find words to adequately or, or scientifically describe for you what was going on or what I was feeling. All, I, all that was available to me was art, right? A part of that service that night was a guy by the name of Al Denson. Anybody remember Big Al Denson? Raise your hands. Oh, man. And can you remember the one song that was just the killer song? Does anybody remember it? Will You Be the One, right? And sure enough, that night, sure enough, that night, it was already a great night. And then Al Denson cuts loose with, will you be the one (laughs) to answer to the call, right? Will you stand when those around you fall? Will you be the one to take his light to a darkened world? Tell me, will you be the one? And man, we were all like stand up like, yes, <laughs> I will be that one. Yes, I will still be that one. And I want to say this. I want to say this. That was as real as real gets. And I still feel that sort of inner young youth pastor raising his hand. I still feel that, yep, 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 I will be the one. I hope you have had such an experience. I, I hope that you too have been to a, a let's say, a, uh, a mo- been involved in a moment of worship. I hope it's been here. When you've been involved in a moment of worship that is just so thick that all you have are the artistic words to try to capture what it is that has just happened, what you've just seen and felt and experienced. And I hope that that process has been completed with your commissioning to be the one. Because I, I think that's what worship is meant to do. I don't, I don't think it's just meant to give us goosebumps. Goosebumps are great, right? But if that's all it is, then the world doesn't get changed, right? I mean, at the, at the end of that whole conversation comes the ask, will you be 
the one. Here, here is my, my only, as I, now that I'm this old, right, and I am, am thinking through all this again, I think I would say, will you be the one that is part of the many that is understood to be the church, the people of God? In other words, will we be they? <laughs> will we be those folks? And told Jason earlier this morning, and will you read to the end of the chapter? Chapter six is beautiful. And there is a moment, and we will see it here in just a second. There, there is a moment when having just been swept up in this entire scene of, of worship, there is this commissioning moment. And there is that time when God says, who will go for us? And there is that moment when Isaiah strikes a pose that's really reminiscent of young John Middendorf saying, yes, I will be that one. And then what comes after at the end of the chapter, if we're going to be honest and read the rest of the chapter within its context, here is what this prophet and here is what the prophetic community is meant to say. Guys, we're headed to destruction. To the extent that we are wandering away from who it is that God wants us to be. And by the way, if you're ever wondering who it is that God wants us to be, it is our deep conviction that all you really have to do is look at Jesus. And if we are wandering away, those of us who are understood to be the body of Christ, from what it is that Jesus would do or say, then that's when the prophetic community stands up and says, we, we've got trouble dead ahead. Dead ahead. That's what a faithful a prophetic community does. That's what the faithful prophet does. But also, also ends every one of those warnings with, but a good God is faithful and there is life and hope at the end of this dark tunnel and all God's people said. But my concern, I won't even say suspicion, my concern is that we don't want to read all the way to verse 13. My concern is that we've been conditioned by all the other grand story, stories and narratives out there. We've been conditioned to stop at verse 8. Yes, I will be the one, God, to take your light to a darkened world. And then when God says, well, here's how you'll do that, you, because you will say to the powers that be, and you will say to the folks around you who probably should know better, man, if we don't start being more like Jesus, there's going to be a real darkness. I absolutely would have handed this passage off to somebody else had I known better. So let's talk about the California angels, amen? Let's do that. The California Angels, uh, deemed the California Angels in 1965, but in 1997, they were renamed the Los Angeles Angels. There was an ownership change, and then that owner changed the name to the Los Angeles, An uh, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, because why not, right? And in 2005, they finally dropped the Anaheim stuff, and so they are now back to being the Los Angeles Angels. In other words, the, the angels, the, the subject team in the, in the movie, uh, Angels in the Outfield. Anybody ever seen this one? Right? Yo, this star-studded cast. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Matthew McConaughey. I mean, there's all these people. Christopher Lloyd, uh, Donald Glover, Tony Danza. I think, he's, I think he's still a star even, Tony Danza. I think he's... But it's a great movie. Now, uh, it is about the... Uh, California angels at the time, but there are also angels, angels in this movie. 
And there are angels, angels in the passage of Scripture that you just heard Stacy read. What, what are we going to do with these angels? Well, it, again, I think there are moments when all you have are the artistic words to try to describe what it is that you sense from this God. So, John, do you believe in angels? Why not? I don't know. <laughs> but here's what I would say. I would say that God has an incredible reach. Would you agree with me that God has incredible reach? And as God has incredible reach, God cares with every bit of that reach. Would you agree with that? And if the way that we want to describe that is somehow angels, that's fine with me. These angels in the movie and also the ones that are in the scripture are all doing God's bidding. In other words, they are extending the reach of God. So I don't want to get I don't want to get tripped up on a discussion of angels. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is what it is that God calls us to do and to be. Now, in this particular, in this particular uh, story, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character right there, going by the name of Roger and his buddy, JP, are both in need of families. They're both in need of families. Their family systems have deteriorated. They're both in need of families. They used to sneak into the Angels games and watch the Angels lose day after day after day after day. Having something of a loose connection with his birth father, Roger used to ask his birth father, hey dad, I know we lost mom. So I'm asking you, when are we going to be back together as a family? His dad pretty sarcastically says, well, probably when the Angels win the pennant. Roger, taking this seriously, starts praying to God that God would help the angels to win. And apparently God sent angels to help the angels win. see it. It's really good. Or Ren, I don't think you can go see it, but Ren, it's really good. So there are angels in the outfield, and there are angels in the sanctuary. At least in the, here in, in Isaiah chapter 6, there are angels in the sanctuary. But again, I, I would say they're playing at least a similar role, similar role, in that they are extending the care of God. The guy with the hat, A-L, that was the angel Al. I don't know what this particular angel in Isaiah 6, I don't know that, that this angel has a name necessarily, but in a similar sort of way, this angel is carrying out the heartbeat of God. But are we sure we know what the heartbeat of God is? The, the movie ends beautifully. It really does. 
mean, everything wraps up. I mean, there's, there's great moments of triumph. There's, there's great moments of tenderness and, and care and everything. And it's beautiful. Is that what God wants? Is, does God want for all the stories to end at the end of the 30-minute show, the hour-long show, the two-hour movie? Is that, are, we, are we sort of addicted to the really nice, healthy, hopeful endings? Now, you've heard me say this, and I'll say it again today. I do think God ultimately has hope and restoration in mind. But it's not quick. We'll, we'll say this again. In fact, I'll have Walter Brueggemann's help later on to say this. But, but let me say this. This week I talked with folks, plural, who out loud ached for God to do something immediately to fix the problems that they had actually self-generated. Can God heal like that? Well, God can do whatever God wants to do. Does God heal like that? I, I think Every once in a while you hear a story, a miraculous story, which in a way proves that it's the exception, not the rule. I think the rule is that there is healing in rehabilitation. I would say divine healing in rehabilitation, in therapy. I would say divine healing in the slow processes that are meant to heal and mend that maybe sometimes people see as outside the realm of God or outside the realm of theology. I don't. We don't, as a tradition. That's what we mean when we say in our organizing documents, we believe in providential means and agencies. So while we believe that God can heal in a moment, what we would also say is sometimes it's like a thousand moments because it's a thousand moments, a thousand trips to the, to the rehab, to do the work on your knee or your hip or your head or whatever it is. Sometimes it's a thousand appointments with the therapist. But we believe that all healing starts with the heart of a loving God and all God's people said. Mm, it was weak. So sure, God can. But most of the time our eyes tell us that God is in it for the long haul. And when we say that, when we say that, sometimes what we're saying also is, it may get worse before it gets better. When do the people of God say, it may get worse before it gets better? It's not that it won't get better. You may not see it. When do the people of God, when are the people of God the people who would say, wow, we have wandered, we have strayed. And yes, there will always be hope. Yes, there will always be hope because our God is who our God is. And our God dreams what our God dreams. But the path from here to there may be taken through very difficult pathways and journey. When are the people of God the people who say it may get worse before it gets better? One of the answers is, well, maybe we say it whenever God says to say it. Isaiah is a prophet who served several different southern kingdom kings. 
Israel was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. Isaiah served kind of in the cabinet of so many of these southern kingdom kings in the years leading up to the Assyrian exile. So God was able to say to Isaiah, we're wandering way off, off path. And by the way, we're wandering into oncoming traffic and it's going to get bad. It's going to get bad. The first five chapters of the book of Isaiah give us some idea of what Isaiah is facing. Kings plural, and people who seem to take pride in being the people of God, but who seem to have forgotten what it means to be the people of God. Rather than using the lenses and filters of faith, both the rulers and the people seem to have given themselves to other narratives, other lenses, and the result is a nation now wandering away from God and into wave after wave after wave of trouble. Isaiah is always the one to say, hey, We've got to take a faithful posture. We need to take a faithful stance here and use our lenses of faith. And in the very next chapter, he's going to say to King Ahaz, hey, listen, you don't have to buckle to these political pressures. It's a long story there. You don't have to buckle to that. You can be a person of faith and navigate us through this. Ask God. God will show you, Ahaz. Fakes spirituality and says, oh, I would never put God to the test. And Isaiah says something very interesting, which maybe should be something we should needlepoint on pillows, and maybe it should be something that we should put on our mirrors, and maybe it's it's a haunting sort of statement, but Isaiah says to the king, if you don't stand by faith, you won't stand at all. Maybe prophetic communities like ours need to be the ones who at times say to whoever will listen, We are the people who believe that you can stand by faith no matter what room you're in. And we probably should be the people who say, and if, folks, we choose not to stand by faith, there's a great chance that we're choosing not to stand at all. This is the fix that Isaiah is in. It is in this situation that Isaiah stumbles onto sacred ground, and God having already called Isaiah into service, now commissions Isaiah to communicate a particular message, a difficult, confusing, terrible message (laughs) that ends, as you might expect, where God is concerned, though, in hope, in hope. Words that you've already heard. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, And the hem of his robe filled the entire temple. Seraphs, these are angels, fiery beings, these seraphs, were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces so that they wouldn't gaze directly at this God. And with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled smoke. I got to tell you, one of the things I thought when I read all of this, as you've already heard me say, there are some moments that you can't describe with words other than artistic words. They're just that big. Just escapes us. But here's the other thing I thought, and I do not mean this as a critique of this place because I know the work that goes into making this place this place and the work that goes into making what happens here on on the platform. I, I understand all of that. But here's what I would ask us. Have we have we lost any contact with that kind of sense of awe and wonder? Do we, do we at all worry when we walk in here at the size of the God 
that we are worshiping. Yes, God's mind about us is made up and the news is good, but that God is enormous, terrifyingly huge. Loving, yes. Huge, yes. In our worship, have we abandoned all thought of the size and the length and the breadth of God, opting again for only the comfortable parts? Listen, we will never dispense with the loving and caring and the comfortable parts. My question to us and me, I'm asking myself this as your pastor, are we doing enough to remind one another that this God is enormous? How big, John? Big enough to mean it when God says, listen, if we stay on this path, I'm gonna wreck everything. That seems very ugly. It seems very ugly that God would say such a thing, especially one that you keep telling us every week, that loves us and whose mind is made up about us. Well, all of these things can be true at the same time. A very large God has created a great creation and called it good and very good. And that same very large God says, there is a way, there is a posture that I want from you if you're going to embody me for the rest of the planet. And if and when you fail to be those people, God says, I will get it done one way or another. It's not that I somehow now dislike you or don't love you. It's that I will be embodied by someone. Whoa. Isaiah gets some of the awe of this moment and says in verse 5, Woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Have you seen these Israelites out there? Yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. I read a guy this week from Perkins Seminary named Charles Aaron who said, if Isaiah thought he lived among a people of unclean lips, we live with cyberbullying, hate speech, name-calling, microaggressions, profane chanting, and weird conspiracy theories. Since much of the language happens online, we might call ourselves people of unclean lips and fingers. Yeah. Now what? If we are able to recapture the awe of this space and the awe of what this space would indicate, that God bothers to show up and live with, not just in, but with us, what does God do now when we recognize that we may not be worthy to be in this partnership? God says, no, 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 I've I've chosen you. Watch this. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. And the seraph touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, okay now, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Al Denson inspired and all, I will be the one. (laughs) I will be the one. What do you want, God? I'm handing you this blank check. I'm handing you a blank check, and I want you to tell me where to go, when to show up, and how to show up. 
You just let me know, God. You know what? Uh, other passages I was handed today did a similar sort of thing. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus calls disciples. But he kind of gives them some idea of who he is when he does the miracle with all the fish in the net. And Simon Peter goes, oh, man, I get who you are now, and I am not worthy to be here. I am not equipped. I'm not worthy to be here. Jesus seems to say, I make you worthy. Welcome. The Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15 said, man, I was Saul. I persecuted the church, and God called even me. Yeah, Christ did and said, you know what? I'm going to change your name. I'm going to change your essence. I'm going to change your posture, and you belong with me. Now, those are all great stories, but I think Paul would tell you, and I think Peter would tell you that life didn't get easier when they said yes. Anybody else want to agree with that? It's good work. It's the right work, but it is not easy work. It's not easy to be parts of a prophetic community, parts of prophetic movement. Now, like I said, this would be a great Thursday night at camp message if we stopped right there. And again, I'm for great Thursday night messages at camp. I, I, am, for, I am for the organization of moments within which people of all ages can perhaps cut through all of the noise and hear God call. I want that for your children. I want that for your children's parents. I want that for your children's grandparents. I want that for me and my kids. I want us all to have a moment, a moment of clarity when we can finally hear the whispering but sometimes shouting voice of God say, who will go? I want you all to have a moment that says, here am I, send me. I am for those moments. I am not for leaving out the rest of the story. Sure wish this chapter ended right there, but it doesn't. So, verse 9. Okay, you're going to be the one, huh? Here's what I want you to say. Go and say to these people, your people, my people, keep listening, but don't comprehend. Keep looking, but don't understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and be healed. What in the world? Did you all know that was in the Bible? Did you all know that that was also quoted in every gospel? These same lines are quoted in Matthew chapter 13, in Mark chapter 4, in Luke chapter 8, and in John chapter 12. Because as it turns out, the people of God have always had the capacity, frustratingly so, to see the truth and then to not see it. And to live by another truth. And so in the New Testament, in the Gospels, it's Jesus saying, you all do not see what's right in front of you. You don't see it in Mark. You don't see it in Matthew. You don't see it in Luke. You don't see it in John. And by the way, same words are in Acts chapter 28. Can you believe that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. These words, these words that are so troublesome show up in all of those books because it seems like two things we have to notice here. Yep. 
we do have the capacity to miss what's right in front of us. But secondly, God will have God's way. God will have God's way. And God has always wanted to have a people to call God's very own. But if and when those people aren't up to the task, God will still have God's way. But the role of the prophet and the role of prophetic community is to say to the people, wake up. Stand up. Pay attention. Seems like God knows that something like the exile was going to be necessary. Seems like Christ may know that something like the crucifixion may be necessary. But in both of those cases, I would submit to you that God also knew that there was a light at the end of that tunnel brighter than anyone could have imagined. You all, resurrection is bright, right? But Isaiah, predictably, is concerned about being the messenger who gets shot. Verse 11. Then I said, Isaiah said, how long, O oh Lord, how long do I have to carry this message? It doesn't get any better. Are you ready for this? God says, okay, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is utterly desolate until the Lord sends everyone far away and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Well, amen. Verse 13, even if the tenth part remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it is felled. And then it says, the holy seed is its stump. Well, there's your epiphany moment. <laughs> I still wish I could have handed this sermon off to somebody else, but that's your epiphany moment. The epiphany moment goes something like this. God will not give up. God will not give up on God's people, on the thought of having God's people. And even if there is something like an exile that seems to be necessary to finally reroute the people of God, even if there has to be something like an, an execution, the crucifixion to reroute the people of God, what we can ultimately see, even in the exile and even in the crucifixion, is God not giving up on God's dream to have a people and to reach all the people through God's people. The question I have for us today is which people are we? Which people are we? Again, the folks I spoke to this week wanted deliverance without reckoning or judgment or process. But they don't understand that deliverance is embedded both in the judgment and in the process. How many Christians do you know that essentially want to get wealthy by winning the lottery or to get skinny just by taking a pill. But transformation, it's always been the case that transformation takes more than a single decision made at an altar. It's essential and you need to make it. But transformation likely means more than that. It takes a change of life and a change of grand narratives by which we make sense of our lives. Exile was not just punishment and judgment, it was that. And it was not just cleansing and purifying, it was that too. But it is also restoration. It is also a new trajectory, new creation, a new story. And with this, my friends, some of you will hear an audible groan here. Uh, that's because I'm bringing back the, oh wait, Brueggemann, there are no easy healings, there are no ready turnings. 
The healings are not readily available and the turnings are too demanding. There is no easy gospel. There is no cheap grace. No good word that gives assurance to those who drop by hoping for a quick and comfortable deal. What we really need is a change at the bottom of our iceberg. There it is. There it is. If you have been attending here for any length of time at all, you are worn slick by this image. If you are brand new, I love you. Welcome so much. I have so much to tell you if you're brand new. What I've said to us about this iceberg is that this is the life of faith. But typically I'm talking about the individual's life of faith. You know, actions happen at the top and you feel guilty about it and you ask for forgiveness and, and if God will just forgive you, great. But if you don't deal with the motivations underneath the actions, then all you're really doing is asking for some sense of forgiveness, but it doesn't change your mind or heart or, or life. But the motivations come from somewhere too, right? They come from this deep, deep, I used to call it, I even called it today a grand narrative, but I will, I've gotten to where I call it the meaning-making story. All of us have a meaning-making story to which all of the other stories answer. Does that make sense? All of us have a meaning-making story that we're living out to which all of the other stories answer. That is not necessarily the Christian story because some people live by this mantra, the one who dies with the most toys wins. Well, if that's your meaning-making story, then you can see that there are certain motivations that will come out of that, and there are certain actions that will come out of those motivations, right? But what if the meaning-making story is the one that we see in the face of Christ? What if the meaning-making story is the one that we see in the light of the resurrection? What if, what if you could switch out the meaning-making stories? Maybe you recognize that you have a bad one and you need a better one. Here's the good news. That is absolutely possible. And I don't think this is bad news. Uh, this is just real news, ready? It just may take a while. Habits and practices, yes, decisions at the altar, maybe a thousand of them. Habits and practices, relationships, a community of faith, changed definitions, changed definitions to words that before meant success but no longer mean success, but new words that now mean success that probably before didn't mean. That's what happens when you switch out. Here's what I would call that, ready? Conversion. Conversion. When you switch out any other meaning-making story for the one that we see embodied in the person of Christ. Now, to bring it all the way back, here's why this is so important today in Isaiah chapter 6. The only way Isaiah has what it takes the only way last week Jeremiah has what it takes to be the voice of the prophetic community, the only way OKC First has what it takes to stand up and say, no, this is wrong because it's this far away. It's this much wrong because it's this far away from Jesus. The only way we have the stamina, the endurance, the strength to stand up and say what needs to be said when it needs to be said is if we have the right meaning-making story or if we're at least in process of making sure that the right meaning-making story is anchoring the iceberg, which gives rise to certain motivations, which finally will give rise to saying the right things in the right moments. God has called us to be a prophetic community. Not just us, but certainly us. Other churches too. 
I just hope we'll say yes. I think God calls churches, communities of faith, congregations to be prophetic communities. What I don't know is whether or not all of those communities that are called are doing the kinds of things that over a period of time result in conversion. What if this is not just about a person? What if this is about a people? What might it look like if we really worked every Sunday to make sure that we were cementing and enthroning the right meaning-making story? Would it shape our collected motivations and would it shape our actions? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we'll need it because, honestly, some of what God asks us to do is beyond our capacity to do it. But this is where we find and learn to enjoy the companionship of God that makes us stronger than we would have been otherwise to deliver the messages that need to be heard. That's why we're using the benediction that we're using. And and I don't want you to stand, but I want you to listen to the words of the benediction that I'm going to deliver, like, for reals later. But I'm going to say something to you like this, well, exactly like this. May the God of peace himself sanctify us through and through. And may our spirits, souls, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that's not a rapture thing. I think if we're ready for it, God is always in the process of arriving. May our spirit and souls and bodies be kept sound and blameless at the constant arriving of, the, of Christ by Christ's spirit. But this line, ready? This line is spoken in full knowledge that what we're asked to do is bigger than we are and we'll need the help to get it done. The one who calls us is faithful. And he will do it. Welcome to Epiphany. You are capable more of more than you thought, specifically when you understand yourself to be resourced and fed by the source himself. If you were helping us, please come down. I've gone way long today, so please sprint down to the front if you could and uh, (laughs) help us to set this table where, I mean, think of it today if it helps you as a training table. Today, hopefully, we will get just enough help, nourishment, to be able to be a little bit more faithful today and when the opportunity presents itself to say what needs to be said, to be the people we need to be, the people who God calls us to be. I do believe that there's help and hope. Are they angels? I don't know, maybe. I don't know, maybe it's just the reach of God. That I know for sure, God can reach you and God can help you. Heavenly Father, bless these moments. And in these moments, God, strengthen us to be your people. Stronger than we thought we could be, more faithful than we thought we could be, more endurance than we ever thought we would have, more hope than we thought we would have. Strengthen us in these moments with this simple ritual, bits of bread, sips from the cup. Strengthen us now, God, to be your covenant partners, 
your faithful people known as the body. In a moment, there are ushers in the aisles who will dismiss you by row to come down front. And you are all invited, but none is compelled. If you don't want to take part, you don't need to take part. But if you would like to, come down front with your hands cupped to receive a little bit of bread. When this person right here presses this bread into your hands, he or she will say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Take that piece of bread. Don't eat it just yet, but dip it into the cup. When you do, that person holding the cup will say, and this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And then take and eat. And then if you would, find a place to pray. And here's what I'd like for you to pray. God, help me. However you're going to help me, God, help me to have the stamina to do this at least for today. At least for today. Perhaps you are not comfortable taking communion by intention. That's fine. The people in the aisles will also have some prepackaged elements, and those work just as well. I'm going to go through the ritual right now, so whenever you get those prepackaged elements, you can just go right ahead and take and eat and drink. And then, if you would, remain in a posture of prayer. It was on the night that he was betrayed that our Savior took bread. He blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body broken for you. And every time you eat of it, including today, remember me. The same way later he took the cup, held it up before them and said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant. And every time you drink of it, including today, remember me. And so now all across the sanctuary, ushers, now if you would, dismiss people by row to receive these elements, either by intinction or with the prepackaged elements. The gifts of God for the people of God.
I'm going to go ahead and start what will be a, a brief season of prayer before handing it over to Jason. Heavenly Father, forgive us. In these moments, we confess that sometimes we all live as if the chapter ended with verse 8. But we know too, God, that as we read throughout the scripture that it, it was a hard life for the people that you chose to be partners, and that would be all of us. It was a struggle for Jeremiah, it was a struggle for Isaiah, Simon Peter, the Apostle Paul. Likely we can think of others now who found the life of faith to be fulfilling but difficult. If you feel like you have fallen short of the high calling of the prophetic community, this is your chance to pray that prayer. Please hear these words of hope even as we are praying prayers of confession. May the Almighty God have mercy on us and forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Spirit, keep us in eternal life. If you would continue in prayer for me. I'm grateful for the moments that God has given us. Thank you for the message that God has given us as a gift today and the gift of bread and cup. Something that has struck me today of the many things said, as Pastor John said, God will not give up. God will not give up. God will not give up on you. God will not give up on us. So before we even mention some of these names that God has given us to pray for, if there is a sense, whether you're here in the room or watching online, that you know someone in your life, or perhaps you are that person, that seems unreachable. Would you pray for yourself now? Or pray for that one person for God to reach, for God to touch. Perhaps you've understood that as a prodigal, perhaps. Someone who's far away. May you pray for that person and also hear the message that God will not give up. God, we come to you with a variety of different requests this morning, asking for your loving care. God, we ask that you would take care of Rick Stahl. Rick had a fall this week and spent some time in the hospital. He's home and doing very well for the condition. But God, we ask that you would touch and heal Rick and come alongside of Linnell. Thank you for surrounding them with a loving family from afar, but a Sunday school class and a teacher willing to come alongside and be grace right next door. God, we ask that you would take care of 
our friend James Shea, who under, understand has surgery planned tomorrow morning. God, would you take care of James and be with him and bring him healing, strength, hope, friendship. God, we ask that you would continue to take care of a few folk who's recently had surgery this past week. Like a couple weeks ago, Blake Jackson, our friend, God, would you be with Blake as he heals? Phil Johnson this week. And our good friend, Matthew Larson, who usually sits right over here, recovering from a very difficult surgery and very painful. God, would you take care of these three men? God, would you be with Blake, Phil, and Matthew? And God, would you come alongside of each of them? And God, might Matthew this morning know your love and your care and your healing? God, we ask that you continue to be with Evelyn Slothauer as she recovers from her surgery and all that Karen Martin has gone through. God, we ask that you would come alongside of our friends who can't come to church as much as they would like. And that goes for a lot of people, some watching online and some who quite can't do that. But God, we think of Glenn and Betty Fain. God, we ask that you would be with some folks this morning who are struggling with the effects of COVID. Friends that we know that are hospitalized, others who've come up to me this morning saying, would you pray for an aunt of mine who needs healing from COVID this week? God, we ask that you would come alongside, bring healing hope and a strength that you are with those who are struggling with COVID, long COVID, or now having the difficulty of trying to recover. God, we ask that you would play, you would also be with brokenhearted, those who are incarcerated. God, we ask that you would, especially this morning, come alongside of folks who are struggling with cancer and ask that you'd be and give strength and healing to our friend Scott Peterson, my mother-in-law, Margaret Farmer. And God, we ask that each week, moment by moment, prayer by prayer, every Sunday, but perhaps every day, saying prayers like this might transform us and change that meaning-making story at the bottom of our iceberg. And today, Lord, we pray that prayer together. The Lord's Prayer, the prayer you taught your disciples to pray. Would you join me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.